Hi, friends. I talk a lot about systems thinking on this podcast and thought I'd share one of the most potent actions you can take if you feel moved to be a different kind of leader for the 21st century. At Small Giants Academy, we developed our answer to the traditional MBA. We call it the MBE, a mastery of business and empathy. The MBE is a truly groundbreaking program which equips leaders with the tools, strategies, networks and philosophies to lead with purpose in these troubled times. Applications are open now for 2025. So head to smallgiants.com.au forward slash MBE to learn more and sign up. This podcast is brought to you by Intrepid Travel, the global leaders in providing experience-rich small group trips. Intrepid was founded on the idea that travel, if done right, can be a force for positive change in the world. They believe that adventure and an open mind can break down barriers, challenge stereotypes, and bring us all a little closer together. Hi there, and welcome to the Dumbo Feather Podcast, a monthly series where we chat with inspiring, thought-provoking guests who are doing their bit to make the world better. I'm Diane Cotter from Dumbo Feather, and this month we're hearing from cartoonist and philosopher Michael Lunig. In an age where we can find ourselves feeling exhausted on a daily basis, Lunig brings perspective, a duck helping us navigate our way through choppy waters. In this episode, Lunig chats with Mike Bartlett about how we can lean into the unknown, accept melancholy as an integral part of our lives, and find joy and beauty in the uncertain. This conversation was recorded in front of a live audience for our friends at the School of Life. Throughout it, you'll hear Lunig refer to six of his illustrations, and this episode is best enjoyed with access to the images, which you can find on our website. But if you're on the move or in the car, take a look at the pictures before or after. You can find them under the podcast tab at dumbofeather.com. Now, here's Lunig. Uh, good evening. My name is, is Mike, and I will be doing less of the talking tonight. Most of the talking will be done by, of course, Michael uh, here. And we're going to go through six cartoons, and we're going to look at six different themes and talk about how those themes might relate to, uh, to each of those cartoons. Uh, and we'll probably end up talking about various other things besides as we go through. Now, Michael, we're here talking about antidotes to dark times, this idea that we, we're looking for places to find solace from troubled times. Are you aware that people look to your work for solace? Uh, uh, this particularly, uh, have you been yeah, surprised in the places that your work has, has turned up? Y- yes, I mean, the surprise about one's own work is interesting in itself. When you start out all those years ago making a, f- you know, a funny little drawing to yourself and a few days go past and suddenly you're sitting on a stage here tonight. It seems like that. It's so quick. And, uh, and, and cartooning was not something I, uh, I was trained to do. It's a self-taught thing. I don't know where you could learn it. But um, So it always surprises me that uh, people will come and listen to me talk in some way. There's still an element of that that I can't quite... And so I'm not sure why people look at it uh, entirely because 
all these years, there's been also a lot of hostility. Right. There's hostility and there's um, discomfort, and I've gotten into trouble with my work. But um, um, I, I don't really... I, I'm still a little bewildered in, about my work <laughs> because every day, I sit, every time I sit down to do it, I'm not entirely sure what the job is. <laughs> <laughs> and that's true. It, that sounds implausible, but it's, it's true to some extent. So I, there's always a freshness about coming to it. Is it well, okay. What can I do today? What can I offer? So um, there's no formula. In terms of... Oh, except to draw a big nose. That's right. the starting point. <laughs> <laughs> that's how you yeah. always start with the, yeah, the yeah, big nose. Yeah, yeah, it helps. <laughs> um, I'd like to talk about ducks. The first duck was something of a surprise to you and, and to your editor at the time? Exactly. Uh, I do recall that time. It was 1969. I was working at The Age and I, uh, there was a bad news event of the day and it was to do with the Vietnam War and it had been a, a very gruesome minefield um, uh, disaster and a lot of casualties and um, it was very depressing to me uh, that morning it was a morning deadline about 9.30 in the morning and I um, I had been through the process I'd fought against the, I'd struggled against the conscription my, my number came up in the first ballot and uh, I was uh, theoretically conscripted and I was ready to go to jail to, 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 to okay. rather than go to Vietnam and I'd followed the course of that war. So it was an emotional involvement and then some of my friends were there and, and all that. So I just got a bit forlorn and couldn't make any meaningful comment or nothing satisfactory. So I made this absurd cartoon instead and it had a, I put a duck in it. And why did I put a duck in it? <laughs> I, I I felt I just wanted to, and and see, so it's as simple as that. So people don't believe that when you're composing an image, you, you might put something in there just on a whim because you like it. And it's like cooking, you know. You make a little dish and you feel it needs a little more salt or a little bit of this or a bit of that. So that is a factor in making a cartoon or a painting. And then I put it on the editor's desk right on deadline and he looked at it and scratched his head and said, I don't understand this, but I like it. <laughs> and so that was the start of being reassured that to act on a whim and an impulse. And, and I, I, I'd thought, what does a newspaper need? What, what can I offer that's not otherwise there? Uh, and I thought, well, a duck? <laughs> uh, because you know that it gets so serious, doesn't it? Appearing on an editorial page, and there's the editorial and all the serious letters, and and I don't want to mock that, but I think what dimension is missing? And I think for me it was the creaturely dimension, uh, the primal, uh, the playful, uh, and I think that has a part it, to be integrated into this earnest, um, grim kind of page that it can be sometimes. And I think that's what the artist tries to do. What can we offer that is missing? So do you think there, there is this, oh, perhaps an awareness as an artist, but uh, also as a consumer of art, that perhaps art becomes more important in 
dark times in this, when we're in the grip of this negative news cycle? Do we look to? Do we need art more as a source of well, solace? Well, I think or we comfort? need our creativity. I, I think if something is missing, as I'm, it's kind of to pick up on this point again. Uh, if something is missing in our lives, we must create it. Uh, that's one way through. Rather than to go and buy something to fill the gap, we, we've got to create it. Um, and that's the essence of creativity. It's for a purpose, some uh, emotional purpose, I think. And, and either it's to offer to our own life or to the world, to our culture. And um, you have to have this intuition. What is missing? What, right. what is... What is uh, what are people not talking about that we might be talking about? What is repressed? And I think the artist's work is to express what is repressed. Okay. And and because uh, uh, there's this there's these central themes uh, of our there's these central themes of our, um, our our media. You know, this the main game: his camera or his the economy and. Uh, or there's an identity politics or something, well, whatever. It all becomes very narrow and constrictive, and and you want to sort of open it out a bit, open it out. What else? What else matters? And where else can we look? And I think the artist's gaze can be valuable in that it it's, it turns over there and looks to what's there and says, look, we're we're not thinking about that, and and we do become miserable or culturally kind of moribund if we get too narrow and okay. neglect. And I, I think that's what an artist often offers, or a musician. You know, all, all the artists, the writers, they, they sort of see what's not being talked about. So they can there, broaden there might be the conversation. They can broaden the, the perspective. To broaden. And sometimes that thing that's missing it seems improbable when it's first mentioned. You mean ducks? What, what the heck is right. a duck got to do with you know, the serious business of life? But it's a symbol, is it not? And, um, and, uh, and what does it symbolise? Well, well, you don't know when you draw it on impulse, but in retrospect you look and say, well, it's like a symbol, it's like a hieroglyph. And what would that hieroglyph represent? A bird, a little, uh, a little, a playful kind of animal. I mean, nobody in this room would have a grievance about a duck, would they? Um, so, so, so no it's, duck haters here this evening, no. No, you know, so, so, so it brings, a, it's like a little word. It's, you can draw a duck as quick as you can write the word duck. Well, okay. I can now. <laughs> After a lot of practice. Um, so that's how cartooning is. It's distillation and symbols... And as I say, they're intuitive symbols, but when one reflects upon them, then you can sort of psychoanalyze them, I guess. Okay. Let's, well, let's do some psychoanalysis. Mm. Um, the theme you chose for this first one is beauty, uh, which, which may not be something that comes to mind for many people looking at um, the landscape that you've, you've constructed here, which is slightly, slightly grim. What, is, what does beauty mean to you? Why choose beauty for this, this image? Why did I... To choose this as uh, representing beauty. Well, it was just a casual choice, um, but it 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 was. I, I think it touches me, um, and I I think back to when I made that cartoon, and I think 
It's autobiographical in the sense that I grew up in um, the western suburbs of Melbourne in industrial setting and, uh, you know, pollution was the norm. And, and it, was, it was... We didn't think it was ugly, but it would be regarded as ugly. Factories are... Wharves. This is meant to represent down by the docks or something like this. But you see, people live there and they raise children there and they work there. And what? And there's a sort of beauty in that parents have to provide uh, moments of joy and happiness and this little struggle to create a sublime moment and a happy little birthday party. In this case, down by the sea, but the sea happens to be where all the oil slicks come in. And, <laughs> um, and, and so, see, I, I did grow up with those kind of things and the, the quarries were over our back fence and there was always explosion of gelignite when they were blasting the basalt. And so we grew up with explosions and down the end of the road was the government ammunition factory they, where they tested bullets with a machine gun. So right. I grew up with machine guns and explosions. <laughs> and <laughs> that was the norm. And, um, and the rubbish tips and the meatworks and the tanneries <laughs> and the whole and the, 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 the refineries, etc. But that was our life. And so in the midst of that, you see, beauty is very particularly poignant when it is confronted or overwhelmed by... Uh, ugliness, yeah, and 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 so the beauty that can you can make in the face of impossible odds is particularly valuable, I think. And parents often have to do it in the raising of children. And in this modern world, I think there's a kind of need to make a a, a little environment within a, a harsh and hostile world which it often is, mm. and, and that's parenting. and Providing I mean, that kind of sanctuary. A little sanctuary where certain things can flourish and establish. And, and so beauty isn't just a, a beautiful scene sure. or an obvious thing. That, that is okay. That, that, that's easy. But um, it's this thing one can see or create that's improbable that is sometimes very beautiful or the small beauty or the beauty of of suffering as I was um, quoting say Os Oscar Wilde or, or, or that was my impulse as a child that you would see people in their struggles and the poignancy and the courage is also beautiful so human qualities can be very beautiful and very touching, particularly those things of the courage in the face of, uh, you know, death. Mm -hmm. I mean, we all have to go there, and we all have to grow old, and 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 it's it's the everyday courage with which people grow old and approach death that's just happening everywhere. There's something beautiful in that human quality, I think. And it's unproclaimed, and uh, generally, and beauty is not just something you see on Instagram. <laughs> so if you're talking about confronting death or beauty in the face of suffering, I feel that we're sort of touching on this idea of the way that beauty is related to truth. Mm. Um, that it, 
beauty, as, as Kate says, beauty is truth, truth, beauty. Mm. How do you feel about that? Do you, do you think they're the same thing? Do you feel that artists mm. are more motivated by truth or beauty? Can they be separated? I think that's true. The truth, and, and if, you, if you call it reality, um, and, and then even if it's difficult, a reality or a truth, yes, there is something ultimately or, or deeply beautiful at the moment of acceptance or in accepting what is real and and. Some, somehow that is beautiful. I mean, we've got this notion of physical beauty. We're living in a culture that promotes notions of, um, you know, human beauty and models and models of beauty, whether they're human models or, or, or stereotypical sort of photographs on the back of buses of your next overseas trip or something. <laughs> and and uh, but no. To take joy in, in, in the beauty, in reality, I think is quite an achievement in life. To, to just say, there it is, whatever it is. Uh, here is my difficult day. Here is my beautiful day. I, I don't know. There's something I can't quite grasp as I struggle here on the stage about why this is beautiful. I think it's just reality. And to surrendering to reality is, is a certain beauty. I think the pursuit of beauty is... This doesn't work, not for me. It turns up, and it turns up in how you experience life mm. and how you accept it and the, the relief of surrender to reality. Surrender to reality. That, I feel that's a sort of segue to our next, next theme, which is sanity. Mm. So the second, um, the second cartoon you've chosen here is, is uh, accompanied by this theme of sanity. Where is the sanity in this picture? <laughs> well, um, it, uh, it not, it's not obvious. <laughs> uh, uh, it's not obvious. Um, now, look, that refers to an autobiography. That's autobiography. There was a moment in my early childhood when I was taken out fishing by my father. Um, and a group of his friends, a small group, they were all meat workers, they were slaughtermen, my father was a slaughterman, and they, they had a day off, it might have been the butcher's picnic or something like that, and they hired a little boat with a boater and they went at Werribee and headed out and they were going, nothing could stop them, not even the weather <laughs> forecast could stop them, and it was not good, and we got out beyond the la you know, we couldn't see the land anymore. And a big storm blew up and the sky grew black and the sea grew dark and wild and the waves came up. And uh, it was a terrible time. It was a shocking time and great fear. The, the motor couldn't, wouldn't work. Uh, the men were bailing um, the water from the boat. And I, I, one man fell apart and started crying. He was weeping. And it's the first time this young boy had ever seen a grown man cry. And um, so I kind of somehow... Uh, I don't know. As you see, I held on to my inner duck. And, um, <laughs> and, and it, it, it was uh, somehow... I, I don't know why this is sanity, but it was acting... Everyone more or less did the, 
the best they could. And um, even the man who was crying was doing the best he could. He wept. Maybe we needed a weeping man to survive. I don't know. <laughs> Someone who could express the, the fear. But um, <laughs> it's the stress of life and, and the peril and the dark days and the the terrible times, it's easy to keep your composure when the sun is shining, but when the chips are down, uh, it's like the... Um, uh, who was the poet again? Kipling, uh, Kipling poem, um, if, you know, yeah. to keep your head while all those around you are losing theirs. There's some reference to a solid centre there, and, and, and for me... I don't know how I got through that, but to this day, my worst nightmare, if I'll have a bad nightmare, it would invariably have a, a wild, dark sea. Is that right? Yeah, there might be a shark in it and um, things like that. So it was obviously a formative experience, a trauma perhaps, <laughs> that stayed with me and provided me with lots of images. But sanity is a word that we... Uh, that hovers about in my conversations um, because of this simple idea, you know, is the world going mad? Is it madder now? Even the word mad is an interesting word. It's, you can throw it about if you're, a, if you're a psychotherapist or a psychoanalyst. I mean, it's maybe a more serious kind of word to make such a, a loose word, mad. It's a very complex uh, thing. And the mind, we take it for granted, our sanity or our sanity enough. But it, it strikes me that it's easily lost and it's easily... Uh, it's precarious and... and um, who knows? Is the world a bit any madder now than it was? It would seem so because life is more maddening. I think at the moment, it's it's it drives you mad. People are under great stress, and we've created a maddening pace. I think uh, of growth and speed, and I think um, this idea of velocity which we are living in, which we've gradually grown used to, and we're trying to keep up. And I've made the observation before that love does not flourish at speed. It, 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 you know, it, it's almost impossible. And, and we can't seem to slow down or stop expanding or growing. And I don't hear politicians talking about the momentum and the speed. I think it seems to produce a lot of revenue somehow. It's... It's it's part of the economic reality that it, things go fast and uh, are compressed, and, and so this must be uh, maddening. And um, I don't know how seriously the government takes this notion of the culture of madness. It seems to be promoted almost. Even I think you're touching on. I think you. The, um, the notion of absurdity, too. And there's certainly an element of the absurd to this cartoon and to many of your cartoons. Um, one of the themes we're not talking about tonight is humour, the importance of humour. I mean, do yes. you see humour as having a role in keeping us sane in um, dark times? Sometimes it seems we're losing our humour, and, and because I often forget that I am a humorist too. <laughs> I, I, I get 
caught up with earnest explanations and what I'm doing, and and then this tendency to philosophise, which is lovely. But I <laughs> sometimes I have to check myself and say, "Hang on, Michael, you started out with just the impulse to make." humour of things. And humour is a sort of poetry, really. It's a beautiful poetry. And there is such a thing as good humour, and, and, and a sort of good humour meaning good faith. And then came all this kind of very bitter satirical humour and, and snide humour, which is so savage and cruel. And um, so there's different humours. And I think a good humour is, a, yes, would seem to represent a kind of a level of sanity or or good health. Uh, I mean, the word sane is originally meant health. I think mm. good health or something. But um, but humour, uh, it's you can make a big mistake. You can make the wrong sort of joke very easily these days. There's things you're forbidden to joke about. It would seem. In, in, in the public realm, and uh, you can be uh, sort of very harshly criticised for it. Don't joke about that. Don't joke about that. Don't trivialise that. I think we need to. We need to. I remember once I found a body floating in the Yarra River when I was at the age of 20. Really? And I, I had to sit. I, I was with a friend rowing a boat on the Yarra River, and we 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 thought we'd go ashore, and we put the boat in under a, a tree, and uh, there was a very bad smell. And uh, I said, "Oh, it's a dead dog floating in the river," and I pushed it out of the way with the oar, and a hand rose up out of the water. Oh my God! And it was a child, and it was in a severe state of decom decomposed, and I had to sit there with it while my friend ran it was quite some distance to to get some help and um, I had to sit there and it was a really sad contemplation sitting there and um, eventually a policeman appeared with my friend and he said he looked and he said oh well I better get the meat wagon, and that struck me. I think, oh, and I tell that grisly tale because it lodges in my memory so strongly. But there was a policeman not taking it. He was taking it seriously. He had to take it seriously, but he had to say that dark black humour. Right. I suppose it's a kind of thing. So in that sense, you know, that policeman has to probably do this sort of thing a lot. And so therefore there is some sanity in that improper joke, that mm. tasteless joke. There is something of him defending himself uh, about it. It's dangerous. And I think that is the cartoonist role sometimes to, okay. make, to make a joke you shouldn't make. Uh, because, um, and then, you, you know, the criticism comes in and you feel ashamed very easily. Uh, oh, I shouldn't joke about that. Well, I, I have to say that that discussion of humour touched on things I didn't think we were going to be talking about. We went quite dark and deep there for a... Well, what the, I was lightly talking, touching on absurdity. We said, went on this uh, into darker territory. Well, well that's right, because it's always this juxtaposition, isn't it? I mean, yeah. That interests me is... Um, 
you, you, you have one thing, but you have its opposite, and 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 now the tension between them, as you try to integrate them and bring them together, is a very lively space when you integrate things, as we must integrate the opposites. Well, talk about juxtaposition. Let's uh, let's talk about this one. As we have uh, the theme here is innocence. Yeah. Uh, so we've got this little pocket of innocence here being surrounded by, um, uh, I guess, the working world, the, the working week, the, the um, yes. city workers. There's a, there's a kind of, to me, a, a kind of naivety or determined optimism about this cartoon to mm. me, isn't there? There's mm. people, these two little creatures, characters, believing in good and simple things when the world around them seems to have no time for that. Mm. Is that how you see this? Yes, yes. Um I think that is a source of humour too, Is for me, is that when the innocent and the small and the frail, the, the delightful, small, frail, innocent thing is suddenly confronted by the overpowering, brutal thing. And there's, there's this confrontation between innocence and ugliness. And, and what... And that's a dramatic moment, I think, uh, sort of theatrically. And so what then happens is either something very funny or something very tragic. And it can go either way. I mean, one of those people could stand on the pixies. Right. And, um, but they bravely persist. And are we not all those pixies <laughs> and fairies to some extent in this modern world? And and these these corporates or I don't know, they they don't even have faces in the image. They're just the faceless. There's this momentum. They're going along and they're trudging. Mm. And, and what's in those briefcases? So um, and 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 of course, this is me and my sister at the age of about eight or nine. We. We uh, and one Christmas Eve we collected lavender from the garden and tied it into little bunches and we had a plan to go to the meatworks which was next door to my grandmother's house and we'd stand at the gate and and um, the men would be knocking off from work t- Christmas Eve and they would buy our lavender. We thought this was our, my first business venture <laughs> and. <laughs> We spent a lot of time preparing, and so we set up our little stall. The factory whistle blows, and out the men charge with their Gladstone bags, straight past us. No, I don't think we sold a bunch. They were too busy in getting to the pub, and um, and that and um, maybe I think that little scene is arises from that. Rather sad memory, you know, <laughs> the pathos of that, and we had to pack up and go back to my grandmother's house and console ourselves. But um, let's move on to our next theme. Uh, the next theme for this cartoon is melancholy. Hmm. Um, yeah. I, I do find it interesting that you've, you've chosen a colourful cartoon for melancholy. Hmm. Uh, looking at this cartoon made me think about this: this idea that melancholy and joy are, are sort of different sides of the same coin, perhaps, but looking at this cartoon makes me really feel that they're the same thing, uh, that there is real pleasure in melancholy. Indeed, there is. I think there is. I think yeah. you're right. There's a sensuality to melancholy. I mean, it's a very full feeling. It's not an empty feeling, is it? And sadness is not e- e- empty. Uh, it's not like despair. Um, but, uh, look, you know, I have to live with this kind of criticism all the time, or the observation that I'm too negative and I'm... 
I'm too. I could. I should be more happy. And I, you know, we've grown up in a happy, clappy kind of world in some <laughs> ways. And I, I think we do ourselves a disservice because I find human sadness is very interesting, and grief is a very interesting thing. It's very profound, and it often. Uh, melancholy people in their melancholy are very sometimes very interesting and soulful and they're dignified and but but you're right there's a pleasure of being outcast right (laughs) and alone and then here's this like he's not allowed to he's not allowed to enter the little wandering person or she or it I don't know what the character is that I draw is it a human even it's subhuman and (laughs) in the nose it's a bit implausible (laughs) Uh, and there with the duck you know the the duck which is the direction finding duck when all you lose your way the duck turns up and shows the way Um, but is he is he shut out because you you mentioned him being or him or her being an outcast here yeah but He's, he can enter, he's just choosing not to leave the duck outside. So is he choosing to be part of, exclude himself or herself from the uh, Yes, the great he shows his values. He... He's saying what he values. He'd rather be alone with the duck in the night, right. wandering on, than to be stuck in that dreadful room talking about nothing. <laughs> so, so maybe so. And there is a pleasure about walking away from a loud party or something, isn't Absolutely. there? And, and yeah. we all want to escape and go into the <laughs> night where there's stars and a moon and it's quiet and we be with ourselves or our du- or our inner duck. <laughs> the inner duck talks to us and says it's okay, and that's a great pleasure, liberation. Right. Yeah. Let's move from liberation to love. <laughs> to love. Yeah. To love. Perhaps there's a link there. Oh, um, yes. Do you? When we talk about love, we tend to mean romantic love. With this, increasingly that's what comes so. To mind. There are far more rewarding types of love, aren't there? I mean, do, you, is, do we focus too much on, on the romantic model? I believe it's a lifetime's work to understand that word. It's, it's, it's a very profound word and, it's, um, and what it means and it's, it's universal. It's like, you know, consider love your enemy, that biblical thing. That's a very challenging concept. But it's really important. Mm-hmm. And, um, and if you can get that far... And to include and to have to bear with other and this care, forgiveness, friendship, all these qualities. And a small love, you know, to love the stranger who walks towards you down the street. It's the moment of friendliness. Right. It's just a little aspect of love. And then... There's the great love, you know, greater love hath no man or woman than this. And then they lay down their phone, <laughs> <laughs> etc. Um, so, so it's a big one, and it, yes, of course, the popular culture has confined it. It's a, it's a product now, you know. I'm in love in love, I've fallen in love and all this with this other one person I mean well, This cartoon seems to, seems to speak to that kind of romantic ideal to some extent but I, is this cartoon about the, the importance of being loved more than loving 
we have here the the uh, presumably the, the husband returning home, and everyone's really pleased to see him. He's found his space. Well, yes, it's being loved, but um, in a way, but we are loved, are we not? By by just being alive on this earth, there's a sense that one is being held by life itself. That we we are loved and. And we owe it to the earth to love it in return. Um, you know, ma- the idea of Mother Earth is an old kind of primal idea, and I think it's very valid that uh, we love the earth and we love ev- every moment as much as we can and be well disposed to it. So, so this here is, is like this character, Mr. Curly, I created, and he's got this curl, and he's a bit troubled by it because no one else has got a curl and in in fact it's his peculiarity uh, it's a symbol of his peculiarity and his uniqueness his character and i think we all have curls uh, do we not and we if, when we're young we say oh i wish i didn't have that red hair or whatever it is is your thing or that funny habit or that funny thought so so the struggle to accept your uniqueness is or recognize it and accept it is that's the curl and uh, Mr. Curly comes home and he, he, he comes home and realises that everything's got a curl. The flowers have got a curl, the dog's got a curly tail, the duck has a curly tail. And so it's, it's this harmony and recognising that there's sort of some affinity right. and belonging and fit of everything and we are unique and the best thing about us is our uniqueness. So I don't know, is that something to do with love? I'm stretching it a bit for hard to say that. It's well, hard to sit so. here and look it's, at them. I get it's the point of neck. connection, isn't it? They, they found their bond. They're, they're bonded by having uh, a uniqueness, a certain affinity with each, they belong. With each other. Yeah, we all belong. And I think we belong to each other in our, our peculiarity. I, I think, I think um, to accept the peculiarity of other is a great achievement, I think. In a marriage... In the community, a lot of work. You talked there about the love of, of uh, Mother Earth, of nature, and nature is, is the last theme that, um, that you've, you've chosen to, to look at this yeah. evening. Um, I, love this, I love this image. Um, one of the things I love about it is the sense that nature is, is irrepressible. But it's not, uh, although the branch is bursting into the room, it's not invading, it's, it's, it's reaching out for the... Yes, it's 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 sprinkling them with blossom. It's blessing their little blessing. Their, their moment of union and rapture or whatever it is. Um, they're found together in this rather empty room, and um, yeah, the the, the 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 branch has reached in and blessed them. And yes, there's a great energy in that branch, yeah. isn't it? That I don't yeah. know how it got through that window, but <laughs> it, it did. And because you can do that in a cartoon, and 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 uh, so um, this is nature. I think it does bless us and. And it it is inter- it it connects to to our uh, rapture and and it's it's about nature and um, it's there for us and and we're there for it and we are nature and that's the, the great thing that we are we have human nature and we talk of human nature and I think we are very disregarding sometimes of this human nature just as we've been disregarding 
of the natural world and we're not very, we don't understand our human nature quite often, we're in denial of it and we, we, we torment it and we, we abuse it and we pollute it. So I think the extent to which we uh, dump poison into the, our, our psyche is quite astonishing. We're like so naive. Uh, how you can watch um, television, I don't understand. Um, there's something about, I find it a bit traumatic. Maybe I'm hypersensitive or something. I'm, I wanted to be a filmmaker at one stage, but I find it's bizarre to, to find, they, they invented a way of putting, making a movie and putting it on a, you know, a film, a spool or something and showing, and, and I think that the eye makes sense of our life, the ear, our senses make sense of life. And it's really important that life makes sense and it's coherent and one thing flows to the next. As I look around the room, my subliminally my eye is tracking and it's making sense and meaning. And um, and that that's good. That means I'm... Uh, reality is is very strong for me. Trauma is when something's missing in that line of that sort of sequence of impression. Like you have, a, if you have a car accident and the car rolls over, there's a bit goes missing from your experience. It's it's and that's traumatic when something doesn't make sense and there's a gaps. And this is a Winnicottian idea, mm -hmm. I think. A gap. In, 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 in a sequence of meaning, if something's not there. And our life is full of that. It's trauma. We live traumatically. Film is a traumatic medium in some ways. I, I don't discount that films are important to people and can move us and make us weep, etc. However, what the camera does, it, 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 it takes a bit of you there, then it zooms in on you like there, or it zooms on in this and it cuts to something else, it cuts to this, it cuts to that. And yeah, we, we register it, but I think somewhat, what, what does the soul make of all this kind of chopped up reality and all the, um, I, I don't know what... So do you think at, at the heart of all of that trauma is the gap between us and nature, our own nature and the nature that surrounds us? Well, that's a good point. There is a gap, isn't there? There's a gap in our affinity and our and our connection to each other and to nature. And uh, this this gap, and we get we get used to gap, and it isolates us, and we live in a slightly traumatized day. One minute we're zooming along a highway at a hundred k's an hour with other cars coming towards us, and then we're on a screen. And then we're in New York there, and we're in the traffic here. And I mean, it's an astonishing experience compared to what our forebears had. And you got up, you might have got up in the morning, and it was coherent. Maybe I speculate it was coherent, and I think we are very incoherent. I'm very incoherent tonight. <laughs> Well, let's let's finish on that. So we've talked. To, we've, so we've we've looked at six antidotes to dark times. How? What's one way tomorrow? People leaving here. What's one way we can reach for our inner duck? Do you think? Um, <laughs> don't reach for it. It'll run away. <laughs> uh, I think just relax and it will appear. I, I, 
Yeah, it's interesting. How do we do it? How do we... It's the soul, isn't it? Let's yeah. imagine it's our soul. I think most people know how to do it, don't they, a bit? Just dare do to do it more often or <laughs> have it or, you know, let it show. I think that's important. You've got to take the duck for a run. <laughs> and um, I, I don't just have it cooped up inside you. Just um, let it have a run. Okay. And... Um, would you believe I haven't even had a drink before this? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and if you need a drink to let the duck, just a little glass of wine. Can <laughs> sometimes the duck turns up. That's one of the ways, tried and true. That's not the only way. And be amongst, yeah, be amongst people. Be amongst the world. Be go into the garden. Um, all, right. all those old things that our grandmothers told us, they still work. We'll, uh, we'll let you set your inner ducks free or take them for a walk at least. Um, I'd like to, once again, thank you to Michael Lunig for uh, illuminating us this evening. Thank you, Michael. Thank you. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, Michael. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Dumbo Feather Podcast. And thank you to Lunig for the gentle yet powerful wisdom and reflections. Thanks also to the School of Life. This edited conversation was produced by our digital editor, Lizzie Martin. The music you hear is by Dennis Liu. Stay tuned for our next conversation or hear it first by subscribing to the Dumbo Feather Podcast on your favourite pod channel. For more conversations with extraordinary people, subscribe to Dumbo Feather at DumboFeather.com. We deliver worldwide. <laughs>